The thing that makes the Psalms impressive is that these are personal struggles so that when you read the Psalms, it's like looking over the shoulder of a man as he writes his own personal record. Psalm 73 is no exception. And he writes, My feet almost slipped. I almost stumbled. I almost blew it, he said, because I began to have these doubts about God. Oh, I know that God has been good to Israel. I know that with my mind. And I try to believe it with my heart. But my faith is reeling under the obvious. That is, the success of the wicked, that wicked men prosper, and that evil folks seem to win all the victories. And it's really kind of an outcry. It is the perplexed question of a man who, who wants to believe in God, to continue to believe in God. But how can you believe in God with dignity and intellectual honesty? When you see the fat bellies of the wicked get fatter and they get out of life scot-free, and you see decent people ground to dust under the wheel. It's a question that we all have. It's something that bothers all of us. We all have some concerns about this. And we need to remember that the psalmist grew up believing that God was uh, partial to the righteous. It was the belief of every devout and pious Jew that prosperity was the mark of God's approval and that adversity was the signature of God's wrath. And that if you were the kind of person that you ought to be, if you went to church and said your prayers and pay your tithe, that you could expect God to give you a good crop and a long life and keep you from all trouble. And some of us still believe that. It is a fallacy that has never really been eradicated even from the Christian's mind. And so what shook the psalmist was that there was something wrong with that formula that he had believed all his life. His creed was denied by the facts. His Philosophy was challenged by the events, and his faith was reeling under that. He faltered under it. Well, what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do in those times when it seems that circumstances deny Scripture? When a good God withholds good things from good people? When it seems that bad things happen to good folks? when you have no answers to your questions and no answers to your prayers. We can all identify with this psalmist. For after all, I've been a pretty good guy. I worship God and I pray and I sacrifice. Why has sickness come into my life? And why has my faith been slam dunked by some uh, giant problem? Why is it that when I get all one problem nailed down, another one pops up? And why is it that I have questions that I have no answers for? And why is it that I have prayers that have never been answered? I can identify with a psalmist, can't you? 
Last Sunday morning, I preached a sermon on how to keep from losing heart. That is, how to, have, uh, how, to, how to endure, how to keep sticking with it. Somebody came up after the service and said, what do you do when it's too late? I mean, the sermon's too late for me. I've already lost heart, and I've already given up. My faith's already faltered. What do I do now? And so that's what I want to talk about this morning, how to get back on your feet. What happens when faith falters? Perhaps this sermon is more relevant than the last. I want to say three things about it. Now, if you're not here today where I'm talking, if I'm not scratching where you itch, you will be here probably before too long because this is so relevant for all of us. When faith falters, three things. Number one, be honest with yourself about it. Now that's what the psalmist did in verse 3. He said, my feet almost slipped. He said, well, I've washed my hands in innocence for nothing. He said, I've been godly and it's been useless. I mean, he just got honest with himself. He was honest with the fact that he had questions and he had doubts and he admitted them. Now I think sometimes we have these stereotypes of what a Christian is and how a Christian reacts to life. And our stereotype of a Christian is that he never asks questions of God and he never has a doubt. And any kind of doubt or any kind of question or any kind of fault in that, in that area is a sure sign of spiritual weakness. And then when those doubts come and those questions arise, we begin to think, well, I must not be a Christian or I wouldn't think this way. And so we work through all of that and finally we know that we're a Christian because we've done what God has said to be saved. And so then we say, well, I just don't have the doubt. And we deny it. It's called repression. And we shove it back into the inner recesses of our minds. We lock it in some little closet there and we tell ourselves that we don't have any questions about God. I've never doubted His goodness and His grace and we deny that even to ourselves. Be honest about it. I mean, admit it. A.W. Tozier said, All things being equal, a Christian will experience spiritual growth in direct proportion to the degree he's honest with himself. And I remember a little story that took place when King George was just a lad. He and his brother Edward were standing one day looking out the window at Buckingham Palace and watching some little cockneyed urchin kids have a snowball, flight, snowball fight right off of the palace grounds. It, it looked luscious to them. But of course the royalty couldn't engage in a snowball fight with cockneyed urchin kids. But they just couldn't stand it any longer, so they slipped out of the palace without their folks knowing about it, without the guards knowing about it, and they got out there and got in this snowball fight. They were just having the time of their life. They'd never had one before. And the poorly aimed snowball went crashing through the window. Buckingham Palace brought the palace guard, the sergeant out. He lined them all up there like soldiers. He didn't recognize George and Edward, royalty. He'd never seen those kids out there in a snowball fight. But he was going to find out who these kids were. So we looked at the first. He said, what's your name? He said, I'm Prince George. He said, oh, smart aleck. He went to the next kid and he said, what's your name, son? He said, well, I'm Prince Edward, Prince of Wales. And he said, another smart mouth. He looked at the third kid and this little old urchin, this cockney kid. He didn't know who his new friends were either. 
He just kind of surveyed the situation, paused a minute, wiped his nose with his sleeve and said, Well, I'll tell you what, Governor, I'm going to stand with me friends. I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. I tell you what we do sometimes, that's the truth. We try to pretend that we're archbishops of Canterbury, thinking that's the right thing to do, and it's really not. And some of us, I mean, why do you have to play out this, this script that somebody else has written for you? I mean, it's all right for you to, be, to have questions. It's all right for you to have doubts. It's all right for you to be imperfect. You just need to admit that to yourself. I guess I've grown up in my life, living most of my life, trying to, to play somebody else's role trying to live up to somebody else's script. I can remember as a young kid trying to please my father, trying to get his approval, just doing everything to get his approval. That's the most exhausting and painful thing in life. And I got into school, and I wanted to be accepted by my peers, and so I did everything my peers expected me to do. I was just one of the herd. What a painful experience it was to go to high school for me. And I surrendered to preach, and I thought folks wanted me to be Billy Graham. Literally, I thought that. And so I went and got Billy Graham's sermons and got the best parts of them, put them all into one. I mean, literally, it's a true story. I stood up with my Bible folded like he does, you know. He even had the gestures. This is the hour of decision. Can't even sound like it anymore, but I did then. I mean, folks come up to me and say, you sound just like Billy Graham. And I just thought that's so great. Most painful experience of life is to live out somebody else's script. I remember about six years ago, I was over my church in, in Fort Worth, Texas, one Saturday afternoon getting ready for my sermon. I was wondering how these seminary students, these seminary folks, are going to like what I say here. wonder if they're going to approve of this. wonder what some seminary professor will say about the homiletics of this sermon. And I just beat my brains out trying to live up to that script. And I remember that Saturday afternoon, I got on on my face. I didn't get on my knees. I was flat on my face in my study. And I said to my God, Lord, I can't go on like this any longer. This is just not worth the price to pay. I'm not what I am pretending to be. I'm not even what, I, what other folks think I am. I just want to be honest with myself and with you, oh Lord. And I just spilt my, for the want of a better term, I just spilt my guts there. You know what God did? He said, well, that's okay. You ain't so, you know, he, didn't, he, he didn't gasp in surprise. He said, that's all right, son. I've known that about you all along. You ain't telling me nothing. It's just a good day that you were able to face it for yourselves. Now stand on your feet, young man, and I'm going to give you now the message that I want you to have. The first step in getting back on your feet is just admit, be honest with yourself. When the doubts are there, admit them. When the mistakes are there, confess them. When the failure is there, just admit it. It's all right. Second, be discreet with others. 
Now that's what he says in verse 15. I want to call you, let's let your eyes fall down on that verse. He said, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. Be discreet with others. Now, unless you, lest you misunderstand me, when I talk about being honest with yourselves, I'm not saying that you have the freedom just to unload on God before other people. Sometimes, you know, that hurts other people. I mean, sometimes you can be honest about what you think about God and it hurts somebody else's faith. Jimmy Carter introduced a, 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 a phrase that was familiar to us but unfamiliar to most of the world. He talked about being born again. And everybody had, was focused on this born-again Christian in the White House just watching and listening to everything he said. And I know that uh, Mr. Carter was wanting to be honest, so he gave this interview to Playboy magazine, and in this interview he very honestly said, I lust after other women. And I know that he was doing that in the, in the name of honesty, but he did it to the hurt and the hindrance of the Christian faith, and he did it to the hurt and the heartache of himself. I'm sure of that. And just because you're to be honest doesn't give you the license to tell everybody what you think of them. I mean saying, you know, I just tell it like it is, you know. You don't really have that privilege to do that. This is what he's saying here. He said, if I'd have said all that I'm feeling inside of me, I would have hurt other people. And I like the New English Bible's translation of that. He said, yet if I had let myself talk on in this fashion, I should have betrayed the family of God. Now you do have a responsibility to be honest to yourself, but you also have a responsibility to be discreet with regard to the feelings and the faith of others. There is a sense that when, in that, that when you have doubts and when you have thoughts that just kind of rub the grain of the, of, the, of the traditional Christian understanding, it is, it is good that you have a friend that you can just talk with. You know, I have those friends. I mean, I meet with them every week and we just pray some things through, some doubts that I have and those kinds of things. But, but it also is true that you need to be discreet with those kinds of things. We went through a time, I think, in Southern Baptist life when we wanted just to be honest, you know, totally honest. We called it transparency. That word was used by every Baptist preacher. You need to be transparent. You need to be vulnerable was our term. Well, let me tell you what, that's not always the best thing. I went off on a deacon's retreat one time and got these guys together and we unloaded and got in there and had our first session. The guy got up and he said, now the purpose of this weekend is that we're just going to get totally honest. We're going to be transparent. We're going to be vulnerable. What he meant was we're going to take this weekend to tell everybody what we think of them. And this guy got up and he told about what he thought of another guy there. You know, another guy, you know, just kind of flinching. You know. Then the guy got up and told what he thought about the preacher. I guarantee you I was flinching. And, and after, after, after that session, you know, and we kind of aired out, it was, you know, we aired some, some things out there, but I went home and I was thinking to myself, you know, we've, we've missed the boat here. Now, what the psalmist is driving at is this. 
that if you're discreet about the feelings of others and you're not, you, don't, you don't have to retaliate and get back at them, that means that you're able to take the, the rejection of others and the, and the criticism of others and the blows of others with some redemptive love. That's what he's talking about. And the best way to get back on your feet is to understand that other people have problems too. I don't have to lash back at them, use my tongue as a meat cleaver to chop them up. I'm going to understand why people do what they do to me, which is the source of many of our, much of our pain. Now I want to get to the last point, which is where I want to really be today. How to get back on your feet? You, get, you be open with God. You be open with God. Now I like verse 17. Look what he says. He said, I, I pondered all this stuff. He said, I saw all these wicked people making it in life and you know, getting rich and getting fat. He said, I couldn't understand that. And I was saying, I've washed my hands in innocency for nothing. I've been, my, my godliness has been useless. I've been a good guy and hadn't gotten me anywhere. Until, I love that word, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now hear me, folks. Wake up and listen to this. There are some times when Logic and reason cannot answer your questions. Only the presence of God. Only the presence of God. Philip Brooks was the pastor of Trinity Church in Boston. Great, great preacher. Not only a preacher, but songwriter, old little town of Bethlehem. Many of the songs that are in our hymns, hymnals. One day one of the students in a dormitory was just pacing up and down. He was so anxious and he had so much depression. And he told his roommate, he said, I'm going to go talk to Dr. Brooks. He said, I have an appointment today at 2 o'clock. I'm going to get some answers. I'm going to die if I don't get some answers. And he had this appointment with Philip Brooks, came back after his hour appointment. The friend said, well, what was the answer to the question? And the guy said, what questions? Well, he said, the questions you were going to ask, oh, he said, you know, I forgot to ask. Just being in his presence, he said, I forgot that I had any questions. I've heard people say, to, you know, I've had people say, I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I've got this list of questions I'm going to ask God. Why did you do this and why that? I'm going to ask all these questions. I'm going to get all these answers. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see the other side of the coin. I'm going to get my questions answered. I'm telling you, when the Lord appears in His glory and you become like He is because you see Him as He is, there won't be any questions. It's not that the Lord answers your questions. It's that... He is the answer to your question. And just being in His presence and all these doubts and all these questions just dissolve. Let me tell you how to get back on your feet. Get in the presence of God. Get in His presence. Abide in, in Him, Jesus said. Abide in me and you'll experience the love of God. If you abide in me, get in the presence of God and the questions just vanish. Now, what happens when you come into His presence? God does two things, I think. 
When you're open with God, God is open with you. He gets open with, He opens up to you. And two things are the result. One is that He gives you a perceiving look. A perceiving look. Now notice what He said. He said, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Now, he's worried about these unrighteous folks that are making it well in life. And he said, I didn't understand that until I came into God's presence, then I perceived their end. Where did he get that perception? Well, God gave it to him. Always does. You see, when you come into, are you listening? Shake your head up now like if you hear this last statement. That's it. When you come into the presence of God, He gives you a new perception. I was watching the Olympics on television. Did you watch that? And I was watching Carl Lewis, and I was rooting for him. I was cheering for him. And he's coming around on that, uh, tw- that uh, 200-yard dash we used to call it. I think it's now, uh, what is it, 200 meters or whatever. We used to call it 220-yard dash, it's now 200 meters. And he's coming around there, and from where we were sitting there in the living room, from where the camera was on that, the camera that was on that, looked like he was behind. And my wife said, he's getting beat. And the announcer was saying, Carl Lewis is, you know, he's, he's ahead, but from where we were looking, from the camera that was on, then it switched cameras, you could tell it switched cameras, and he was about five yards ahead. It's a matter of where you're standing. It's a matter of the perception, it's where you are, you see. Now Huxley was right when he said, you can't, see, you can't see the end until you see beyond the end. He's talking about getting a new perception, a new perspective on things. Now when you come into the presence of God, He gives you a new per- perception, a new perspective on it. You look at it from a different vantage point. That's great. A guy was telling me the other day that a, there's a thousand Southern Baptist preachers a month drop out of the ministry. I mean, that's staggering. And he asked me, he said, what do you think about that? What's happening? What, what's causing that? And, and I, you know, and I said, well, I guess they're disillusioned, you know. I mean, who, if you've ever been a Baptist preacher, that's <laughs> pretty certain you're going to be that, you know, disillusioned. But it's not the disillusionment that causes them to drop out. It's what they see, you know, it's what they perceive that's happening. It's what they tell themselves about what's happening. It's the perspective you have on it. I mean, you can have two guys right up here and go through the same experiences of life and one will be victorious and triumphant and the other will be destroyed by it. Why? Because one is able to see it from God's vantage point. He gives you a perceiving look. But He's not only the source of a perceiving look, He is the source of a restraining grace. I didn't say sustaining grace. I said restraining grace. Now this is what He said. You've got to get this. He said, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Just to be near God is enough for me, He said. I have made the Lord God my refuge. My refuge. He is the source of restraining grace. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that God's not going to let you get too far away from Him. 
Now, I was wondering the other day, what, you know, what, what is our concept of God? How, what, what do we see God as like? Well, I think we see God as like an ambulance driver. This kind of drives around in an ambulance, you know, waiting for the wreck. And, and he sees us over here, and he jumps out, and he picks us up, and he gives us CPR, he breathes a little breath into us, and he binds up the wounds, and gets us back, puts us back in the car, and he gets in the ambulance, and he follows us around, waiting for the wreck. That's our concept of God. It's a pretty good concept. Not long ago, one member of my family had a wreck. I won't call the name, but she had this wreck. And, and uh, you know, the, the wrecker, the wrecker was over there before I got there. I mean, this, and I was trying to figure out, how did he know about it? And I said, did you call a wrecker? No, I didn't call a wrecker. I asked the police, you call a wrecker? No, I didn't call. Well, the wrecker guy has this scanner. And he just drives around Saturday afternoon listening to his scanner. Here's a wreck, boom, he's right on the scene. I mean, he's just right there. Some of us think God's like that. You know, he just drives around this big cosmic wrecker, you know. Uh, he just kind of waits for the wreck to happen, and he comes and backs up, you know, and hooks on and kind of leads us off. That's our concept of God. Not too bad, but it's not the best. Let me tell you what God is like. He's like, well, like this. Have you ever been on a, have you ever been up in the mountains? Sure you have, and you're going around those terrible mountain curves, and there's this big restraining wall there that keeps you from going off the side, keeps you from plummeting down into the abyss. Let me tell you what, you need to know this concept of God, my friend. He's not so much like a wrecker walking, riding around waiting to pick up the pieces. He's like a restraining wall that keeps us from going overboard, over the, over the edge. Now listen carefully. I want you to get this. I don't know how many times God has picked me up and bound up my wounds. I don't know how many times God has breathed back into my life some new life, some new breath. I couldn't count them. But I've got an idea that God has kept me from sin more than I could ever imagine. He has kept me from disaster more than I even know. A thousand times, ten thousand times, He has just been there preserving me with a preventive restraining grace. And I'm not even aware of it. Hallelujah. Praise His name. That's what the psalmist is saying. You just trust God and know that He's just going to sustain you and restrain you. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation or the trial provide the, the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. He's a God of restraining grace. You think God has been good to bind up the wounds of your life? You just know that God has been much better in keeping you from wounds. And that's what the writer of the New Testament exalted when he said, He is able to keep you from falling. It's not that He's going to pick you up when you fall. That's a marvelous promise. He's able to keep you from falling in the first place. That's greater. That's even greater. 
Now what the psalmist did, this I'm through. What the psalmist did, he said, I just got to looking around, and when I was in the nearness of God, I just discovered that I had all I needed for life. I mean, the fat cats can be fat. I have all I need for life. I have God. Did you know that you got everything you needed at physical birth to live your life? I mean, your daddy didn't take you back at the end of 11 months and say, it's about time for my kid to start walking. Would you put, on him, put some legs on him? You know, and he, so they gave you, they issued your legs. They didn't do that. You didn't go back, your, your daddy didn't go back to the doctor at the end of 18 month period of time when you're 18 months old and say, well, it's about time my kid learned to talk. Would you insert his tongue? He might have said, would you remove his tongue? I mean, you know, uh, would you insert his tongue? No, he didn't say that. He didn't come back at the end of two years and say, Doctor, it's about time my son started feeding himself and started learning how to write a few things in color. Would you give him his hands? No. You got everything you needed at birth for you to live your life. And physical growth is just the discovery of what you have and its appropriation. That's what physical growth is. It's discovering what you've already been issued at physical birth and begin to appropriate it. Now, you got all you needed in spiritual birth for you to live your life. I mean, the Bible says you're complete in Christ. You don't have to go back to the Lord and say, I need a double portion of this, a double portion of that. I need a second blessing. You don't need to do that. You got all you needed at spiritual birth to live your life. To live your life. And spiritual growth is a matter of discovering what you already possess and appropriate it. And that's how you get back on your feet. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you're a God of a perceiving look and a restraining grace. And that just to be near you is good in the very, very highest form of what's best for us. We believe and say with our heart that even though we have so many questions, so many doubts... Yet we believe that you're all we need. We're satisfied. Thank you for that wonderful assurance, that blessed feeling, that joy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, whose name I pray. Now there are three invitations. Listen here carefully, would you? The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. All you need is Jesus for life and godliness. Now, you can be a member of a church and you're way short. You can be baptized until you turn into a prune and you're way short. You can do good things and be known as the most moral man in town and you're way, way short of the mark unless you've confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, unless you've turned from your sin and have given your heart and life to Jesus Christ and invited Him to be in you, to come into you, your life and save you. Now I want you to come this morning, if you've never been saved, to give your heart and life to Christ, to trust Him as your Savior. Second invitation is for you to join the church. 
Now I know that if you go off to college, you think, well, I won't be there, but maybe about a month, you know, they find out what kind of grades I make, and or at least, you know, four years at the most. Listen, you need to be in this church if this is where God leads you while you're here in Durant. Let's do it together. Let's be a team. And you need to be where you are, serving God, developing you family. God has families everywhere in the world. Come and join this group if God has led you. And you're going to be here in our school. Or maybe you've moved to town. You're part of Durant's community. This is the place where God wants you, perhaps. You come and join. The only reason we're asking you is this, if God leads you to do it. Now, there may be some of us this morning who just knocked off our feet. Our faith has taken a, has taken a standing eight count. I mean, we've been slam dumped. You need to get back on your feet. You need to get with God this morning. You need to get in His nearness. And there are things that come between you and God. You need to get ready to get that out of the way. Get back to God. Get in His presence. Get near Him. You need to start with that rededication of life, recommitment of yourself to God. We're going to have three, in, three verse stanzas of invitation. No one comes, we're through. So you better start right on the first. It's the easiest. Let's do it right now while we stand. <laughs>